Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today, Dan Donny, CEO of Currency. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tomer. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. So Dan, I know you have a really interesting background and to kick things off, would love to hear more about what you did before you started Securency. Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll start at the very beginning. I'm a, a farm boy from Western Pennsylvania. So I grew up on a farm um, in a really tiny town. I took a liking to programming. My uncle was an employee of IBM and got me a computer when I was a young kid, started programming at age 10. Um, as a teenager, built uh, auction programs for, for cattle um, to buy and sell cattle, uh, and then um, went on to, to university at the Naval Academy. Got a, a great education there. Um, did my graduate work at uh, MIT. Um, spent a number of years in the Navy, and uh, then in the year 2000, uh, got out of the military and went to work for a startup, um, or a small company anyway, doing asset pricing models for the hospitality industry. Did you know that's what you want to do? Um, it, it was a cool opportunity. Uh, I'll, I'll t- the name of the company was Virtual Logic, and it was um, designed around the idea of a virtual company. Um, one where you'd bring entrepreneurs together, give them um, tools to allow them to be entrepreneurs. So certain things that entrepreneurs don't care to worry about, like HR systems, payment systems, all that, give them those pieces, but then basically go and allow them to create their own businesses um, and uh, build from a small company out. Um, this, this concept didn't exist. It's kind of an accelerator model. Um, but it preceded that. And it was a really cool experience for me um, in terms of learning uh, about the entrepreneurial world and just had uh, great mentors there um, in that company. Interestingly enough, they were uh, purchased, I'm not going to say by whom, um, by a less innovative company, um, a big company who sucked the entrepreneurial spirit out of the the company and um, the there was a dispersion that, that happened after that. Um, that. That same time, 9-11 happened, and uh, I had been doing artificial intelligence work in the 90s, a lot of work with neural networks, um, and particularly uh, taught uh, at university on uh, financial modeling using AI techniques. Um, so I uh, had an AI background, and when 9-11 happened, I was recruited to uh, work uh, at NSA in their a, their artificial intelligence research um, at what was known as the Advanced Research and Development Activity, ARDA, mm-hmm. um, which was later uh, became uh, uh, an organization called IARPA um, towards the end of that decade. So I spent the a good part of that decade doing at the forefront of AI research. And, and my specialty was in human machine systems and uh, specifically leveraging human intuition and machine speed to produce information advantage. So how you process information faster than, than others. That translates to the financial world um, in terms of how you produce alpha. Um, so how you give an analyst 
um, effectively a bionic reach uh, to process data faster than, than others. So you produce an information advantage. Um, it was just a super cool time in my career. So you were in the military, you left, and then you came back to this government agency, right? You went back to the NSA. Was it because of 9-11 and you felt like your skills and expertise are best utilized in that function? Because typically when people leave the, you know, the military, right, oftentimes they find it hard to go back once they've gone to the private sector. Curious what your thought process was like. I'll, it's not quite as uh, glorious as as all of that. Um, I, I also, <laughs> um, you know, obviously, I, I care a lot about our country and our world um, and right. uh, outcomes there. Um, I, it's it was just one of the coolest career opportunities you could ever get. I, I was literally working with the, some of the world's greatest um, artificial intelligence researchers and. Um, like, for example, the founders of IBM's Watson capability, just some spectacular minds. So for the, for the career um, and, uh, and along the way, got to uh, make some contributions to the security of uh, our nation and our, and our world. Right. Makes sense. Okay. So I cut you off earlier. Sorry about that. So you did that. And then... yeah, okay, yeah, feel free to, yeah, I, I appreciate the question. So yeah, I went on to the Department of Homeland Security and worked as part of their enterprise um, service delivery office. And that was really where I learned, I, I'd largely been an algorithm developer um, before then. And that's where I learned to develop enterprise scale systems and um, enterprise architecture. Um, so I, particularly enjoyed that experience. Um, some of the, my contributions there, as well as the earlier contributions in my career, I uh, became the intelligence community's first chief innovation officer at uh, serving at the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2012 to 2015. And um, that was where I was first introduced to blockchain um, and uh, saw it as a powerful technology, but also a dangerous technology. Uh, that, that early look, you know, I did my first Bitcoin transaction and felt how cool it was to be able to do a peer to peer transfer. Um, but at the same time we were investigating the, the bad activities that were occurring in the blockchain space. And so there were important chain analysis, um, capabilities that were, were developing that were necessary to, um, understand the networks of, uh, a bad activity. And, and here you saw how, well, everyone knows of Silk Road, um, but the, the strong nexus between um, pseudonymous transactions and, um, for example, human trafficking and, and other sorts of nefarious activity. So I, I observed in all of this, first, we had complete oversight. We could see where all the transactions were occurring and you could, with, through chain analysis tools, um, you can easily identify bad activity, ransomware, theft, um, money laundering networks, et cetera. Sticks out like a sore thumb when you have a complete and accurate and immutable ledger. Um, you have that kind of analysis tool. But what was missing was uh, anonym, the, the identity component and natural compliance. So um, there are rules. People don't always know all the rules. You need mechanisms that allow them to freely transact, but where if they, you know, if they're crossing a boundary, where they know um, what the what the rules are. And um, so mm -hmm. that was what was missing from the space. That was one of the observations. And then the second observation was there was really no stable value. So from my fam from my '90s work in financial modeling. I became enamored with the concept of investment thesis and things where you could uh, produce through artificial intelligence an advantage, you know, understand where the markets might be going, but you didn't have, there was no clear investment thesis associated with, for example, Bitcoin. Um, it was difficult to predict where the price would be, whereas you could take a specific investment opportunity like uh, uh, bonds um, or, or equities. And you could at least through information begin to project where the price might be in a year. And um, so without an investment thesis, there's no stability in the price. And uh, there is no mechanism by which an analyst could come in and meaningfully represent to an institution that you should put your money here. Right. 
there's no way to run a DCF model on Bitcoin. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so that, that model left wide open, wow, there's this powerful blockchain framework um, for efficient financial transactions at global scale, but there was no stable value um, and uh, with an investment thesis. So we uh, I began experimenting with the kinds of objects like um, rental income streams that uh, you could tokenize. And um, to get price stability and, um, and actual investment thesis, you would want to securitize the specific um, income streams. So I experimented, and this is 2015, with building uh, securitized portfolios of, say, commercial real estate income streams and tokenizing them. And I built the platform to do this while still working um, at, as in, in government and uh, working at night. And within about two months, I built a tokenization platform that produced uh, dividend-paying currencies. And so at the time, there was no such thing as a security token. So we took the, that concept of, I, I knew they were securities. Obviously, they were securities. That was the whole point. This, they were instruments with an investment thesis. But they had the benefits of a currency in that they were easily transactable. And that's what gave rise um, to the name Securency as we founded the company in 2015 with an eye towards solving these two shortcomings, um, the lack of compliance and the lack of stable value in the blockchain space. So we're definitely ahead of um, the, the movement. The whole ICO craze was just starting at that point. And we recognized that that was a dead end road if you didn't take compliance seriously. Um, so we were building out the tools to, to make that possible. Um, I, because I had built the tokenization platform so quickly, um, I figured it was going to take about six months to build the compliance capabilities um, to go along with it. I was off by about four years. Um, it's took a lot of work <laughs> to build the foundational compliance framework right. to go along with securities. And, and the reason for this is there's a couple key reasons. One is by its very nature, Blockchain networks are global in reach. And, and so some people are doing private blockchain networks, which kind of undermines the very benefit of blockchain. Um, if you want to do true uh, transformational activities with respect to blockchain, you really should be looking at public networks. But you need to give public networks the kinds of qualities that allow them to do secure and private transactions. And um, it, that by their very nature are compliant. And so we, we had to build out those tools. That meant we had to be able to map global securities regulations. So if blockchain allows you to transact in value globally, that means every jurisdiction potentially comes into play. And some jurisdictions, of course, are excluded from international um, transactions. So you have to be able to enforce all of those rules. It becomes a compliance nightmare, I imagine, just given Every jurisdiction has their own kind of set of rules for compliance. Yes. Um, in fact, it, I, I, nightmare is probably too strong a term. It is a, it's certainly a challenge. Um, and what it required was um, thinking about it as a first principle, not as an afterthought. Um, so here's, here's, what we, uh, here's what we built out. We, we built uh, a policy engine. The policy engine actually allows you to map a regulatory policy for a particular jurisdiction. And it's got a nice, easy user interface. So it's even something we like to joke. It's something that even a lawyer can use um, as you map in <laughs> the securities regulations. And you save these regulations as recipes. The recipes um, translate into bytecode. So they're actually executable rules that can be um, enforced on-chain. So we built an on-chain and an off-chain policy enforcement point that allows you at transaction time to actually interpret the policy and um, enforce the transactional rules. Now, um, that, that policy can be updated. So as you go and you change in the policy editor, the rule sets, let's just say that the SEC changes rule 12G1. You simply go and reflect that and then um, deploy it. And the rules are then updated and the token's behavior um, is updated with the change to policy. Now, a, a big piece of this is there's lots of jurisdictions. And let's take an example transaction. Perhaps I'm taking a piece of UK real estate 
um, and trading it for a Singapore equity with an um, investor from the UAE trading with an investor from the US. So in that simple transaction, there are four regulatory regimes that are implicated. Okay. So what these, these recipes can be combined into an international context such that it enforces the, it, it calls on the specific policies necessary for a particular jurisdiction, interprets those rules and allows the transaction to occur at line rate. So this is in real time um, as I'm executing a simple decentralized transaction, passing the token from my wallet to your wallet, it interprets the policy and verifies whether or not that transaction can occur. And if it can't, it tells me, hey, you can't do this because you're violating this rule. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And to clarify, Dan, who are the users? Who are the customers who are using that policy engine? Yes. So the, the policy engine is really designed to support issuers as they bring their tokens um, into the network. So you assign to your tokens, um, you basically attach a policy to it, and um, it enforces this in real time as you engage in a transaction. Um, so it's designed to support issuers, but our platform is really designed for financial service providers in the space. So, so we sell to banks and, and investment banks um, who are looking to support many issuances, br- broker dealers, et cetera, um, as they provide the issuers the tools to make it easy. An issuer doesn't, shouldn't have to know the regulations of um, 100 plus jurisdictions around the world. What they want is a simple tool where they issue their token, and those things are sort of built in. Now, we do a lot more than that, um, but that, that's one of the key differentiators that separates us from everybody else in the space, is that we have this real-time policy component, and here's why that's so important. Banks spend $240 billion a year on compliance. It is the single biggest cost structure associated with, with banking services. And not by banking, I mean broadly banking and investment banking services. $240 billion? $240 billion. How do you measure that? How do you get to that number? That yep. seems insanely high. Yeah. Um, so this, there's a great uh, KPMG report on this that I'm uh, drawing this information from. And that, that has a lot of the, the detail associated with this. But you can, you, yeah, be, any interaction with an investment bank, you can see the compliance staff that they have on, online. If you work at all in institutional trading of uh, assets, let's take, for example, commercial paper, the level of compliance uh, details, first of all, how much it slows down the transactions as you sort of have manual review processes and uh, the level an unevenness of the compliance enforcement at each of these institutions is it's shocking. And um, so this, this results in very slow and very expensive transactions, especially at the institutional level. Um, but also at the retail level, if you look at uh, broker dealers and the, especially mid market broker dealers and the kind of tools that they have to enforce compliance, even, even at a local level, but especially at an international level, you see that there's a complete lack of sophistication and that results in very slow and expensive transactions. Automating this will transform banking um, and investment banking. So having the kinds of tools to make a significant dent in a $240 billion a year cost line is transformational. And that's what we're working to, uh, to, to bring into the market. And um, we're super excited by the kinds of partners that we are are gathering in this. Um, As you may have heard, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, our uh, work with Wisdom Tree, as they're a lead investor in uh, in security, and they're working to bring out their their ETFs through this framework. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to get to that in a second. But before that, I just want to make sure that we cover your product suite and what you're doing. So you mentioned the policy engine is one component of it. I know you have like identity, you have reg manager, and then you have Infinex chain. If you can walk us through these, what the different products are used for. Yeah, Tomer, I appreciate you you uh, looking into our tool set. So, and the opportunity to talk about them. I tried to do my homework. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What, What all compliance functions 
all transactions in the, the regulated financial services space center around identity. And this was, you know, if you remember back to my observation in 2012, it was just lacking identity tools. But if you could add identity tools to blockchain networks, you have the perfect financial system. One where you have uh, transparent, immutable transactions that can be made private so that only people who have a need to know um, can, can see what's occurring on those networks. But if you add identity to it, now you have this framework by which you can basically automate compliance functions. So that requires an extensive identity set of identity services. Now, there's some interesting challenges there. There are global securities or global privacy regulations that require PII data to be jurisdictionally local. And what I mean by that, for example, in GDPR, you shouldn't have PII data um, of European citizens hosted on UK, US servers. Um, that's, uh, that violates the basic principles. Okay. Blockchain, by its nature, is not is a decentralized network, so you can't store PII data on blockchain, and and be consistent with the requirement to have data jurisdictionally local. And then, just for the listeners who might not be familiar with PII, can you? Oh yeah. Clarify that. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, PII is personally identifiable information, and what that means is um, a piece of information that allows someone to say that a specific belly button, um, individual, human being, um, engaged or, or entity, engaged in a transaction. Um, so, for example, my passport is personally identifiable information. My name and social security number are personally identifiable information. That information is co- covered. Uh, there, there are intensive regulations associated with the handling of that information as there should be. Right. So any information that is specific to you. Correct. That uniquely identifies me. Um, So there's special protections associated with the handling of that data. One of the requirements is um, in many jurisdictions is that that data be stored local. And, And so people know where the data exists and it's within the reach. People are um, have seen violations of uh, countries as they uh, vi- misuse that kind of data. And so they want to make sure that the data is hosted local. And so um, that meant we needed to have a very flexible framework where uh, data is stored in a uh, distributed mechanism and one in which specific data exists in specific locations uh, per a jurisdiction's requirements. The other observation generally in the space is there are a whole host of different providers with different capabilities. So folks who do identity proofing, um, a great example of this is on FIDO. It's a great tool, um, but it's only a piece of the overall identity framework. I need to be able to proof an identity. I need to be able to establish that they have sort of certain certifications to perform functions in the space. Like, for example, how do I know that a party is... Um, a qualified broker dealer, or is a qualified investor under, uh, it's called a professional investor, under the regulations of the UAE or of the UK. So it's not just enough to know who they are, but what are they capable of doing? We call these attributes, and they're, they are met with attestations. And I'm not going to go into all of the details of all of this, but the bottom line is a very comprehensive identity framework is necessary to be able to pull together all of these providers to have a simple and easy to use tool set that allows a bank to be able to conduct commerce at global scale. If I understand correctly, the goal is really to automate that regulatory compliance for digital securities. Exactly. That's exactly right. Now, to, to give you a sense of the importance of this, FATF, this, this is you know, uh, it's certainly big news in the blockchain space right now, as the Financial Action Task Force at international scale has put down a heavy requirement for all what are known as VASPs, virtual asset service providers, that is all exchanges, um, even all wallet providers, to be able to comply with what's known as the travel rule. The travel rule requires me to be able to identify the person, the entity, um, who is both the source and the destination of any transaction. So a, an exchange is now required. If I send 
value from, let's say, Binance to BitGo. Each of those parties needs to be able to produce the identity information and share it um, between those two providers. That's requiring a very comprehensive identity framework that only the very biggest providers can, can meet. And what we're providing is the kind of tool sets that allow everyone else to easily participate in this framework and remain compliant with uh, these, these new requirements for the blockchain space. So that's right. identity services. Now, along with identity, what you produce from identity is a set of attributes. So the fact that I'm a U.S. person, um, the fact that I'm an accredited investor, or that I have specific qualifications in the space. Now, by the way, this is not just for individuals. It's also for corporations, the ability to establish these attributes. Once you do that, now you can overlay policy. And this comes back to our policy engine to enforce at, at line rate, at transaction time, the rule sets to ensure that only transactions between known and qualified parties can take place. And this allows for true decentralization. So now I can download my favorite wallet. I can do a peer-to-peer -peer transaction with you. But now the token actually knows what it's allowed to do. And, and so this really unlocks true decentralization, but also um, the kinds of compliance that uh, governments require to, to engage in these efficient transactions. And perhaps the big story is this completely disrupts the current price model associated with banking services as we can really just fundamentally change the cost structure associated with financial transactions. That's sort of the big story. Right. So I want to touch on something you said earlier. You mentioned Wisdom Tree. And I know that together with the Abu Dhabi Investment Office, they invested in your company, right, with the aim of really kind of integrating blockchain technology into ETFs. Can you talk more about that? Yes. I, I've got... One more product piece, and then I'll circle back to that, Tomer, and I'm going to keep this one short. Sounds good. You ask about the InfinExchange uh, network and, and what that does. This is an interoperability framework that allows us to work with various distributed ledgers, as well as traditional ledger technologies. That Traditional ledgers are banks and payment networks, et cetera. This framework maps um, financial transactions to a baseline ontology whether it's an exchange, a purchase, a payment, um, a loan, et cetera, we have the basic tools that allow us to implement those transactions across various distributed ledgers in a compliant way, as well as existing legacy financial networks. And this creates interoperability. And what the importance of that is, this allows banks to stay where they are and begin to transact in the blockchain space. Um, efficiently. We, we can do an easy integration and it makes it easy for them to, to engage in these transactions. This is important because currently in the blockchain space, they're sort of, it's an island. You have legacy financial transactions and then way over there, you have uh, an island of blockchain transactions. It's not easy to move back and forth between those. And with our um, InfinExchange capability, you can easily integrate these systems. But the other key piece is it's ledger agnostic. So it allows us to use various distributed ledgers, Stellar, Ethereum, Hyperledger, um, we're excited about Hashgraph, private or public networks to engage in these transactions such that the issuer doesn't need to worry. They can pick whatever is best for their needs. And in fact, they can use multiple ledgers according to the strengths of each of those uh, ledger technologies. So InfinExchange is big from an interoperability perspective. And that's important because the blockchain space, ledger technologies are evolving very quickly. And what you don't want to do is get locked into one capability and you know, find out that, that that capability is no longer, you know, 10 years later, WisdomTree doesn't want their shares, their, their funds locked into yesterday's technology. So they want um, continual upgradability and that, that exists through our platform. Okay, so now to WisdomTree's offerings. Um, yeah, so we're, we're particularly excited about the, the partnership with WisdomTree. And uh, just for background, uh, WisdomTree is one of the premier brands in the space as they offer uh, really marquee indexes, exchange-traded funds based on their indexing strategy. And uh, so they, they've really driven down the costs 
uh, associated with doing exchange-traded fund offerings. And so they've got clever indexes that track um, all sorts of different asset classes um, from currencies to um, minergy, um, energy. They just did a, a new battery fund that I think is particularly intriguing. They, of course, I think they're the first to have a, a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund uh, in, in the European markets. And um, so they, they are a leader in exchange-traded funds. Their funds are among the most liquid in the world. And so, for example, they have a U.S. Treasuries um, fund that I think uh, the trading volume is about $40 million a day um, on, on that fund. So this is extraordinary liquidity that they bring into uh, the space. Now, what they were looking for, um, they see that what exchange-traded funds have done to the mutual fund industry. So exchange-traded funds uh, are a much more efficient, tax-effective, uh, uh, lower-cost model than mutual funds. And as a result, you've seen a shift in the markets from mutual funds to exchange-traded funds. They began to investigate the space to see what the next generation might be beyond exchange-traded funds. And they saw that blockchain and blockchain uh, tokenized exchange-traded funds could disrupt the ETF industry the same as ETFs have disrupted mutual funds. Right. And how exactly do they imagine blockchain disrupting ETFs? Um, a couple key factors. One is lower cost of transactions um, generally. Second is global reach, as we've described. Um, Exchange-traded funds in traditional markets are really limited um, to their specific jurisdiction. So they'd like to be able to reach a global audience with their, their great set of asset classes. Um, additionally, securities in their existing form, shares of, for example, Amazon, don't have utility. They can't be used for payments. Um, but in the blockchain world, you can actually imagine a treasury-backed fund that you can um, easily transact in as a payment model. That's really disruptive because you bring utility to the securities market and you bring to the utility market. So right now they're stable coins, but they aren't yield-producing stable coins and, uh, or backed with a real investment thesis. They are pretty much static for example, U.S. dollar-backed instruments. You can, um, by bringing their ETFs into the space, have payment models with a yield, an investment thesis, um, and, and so that's, they believe, disruptive to uh, the payment space. So there are a bunch of advantages there, but the fundamental, so global distribution, ease of transactions, a new kind of utility in the space, and then finally, through smart contracts, you can automate many of the back-office functions associated with fund management. So lower cost. Right. Makes sense. Now, the exciting part of, to, to the blockchain world is this brings, um, an, uh, currently in blockchain marketplaces, um, even, say, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and other cryptocurrencies, these are not liquid markets. Um, they're modestly liquid, but you see large movements, multi-million dollar movements in the space, substantially move the markets. So any marketplace that routinely sees 5% a day um, change in value is you know, certainly challenging uh, in terms of a, a stepping off point for institutional value. So if I want to come into the blockchain space and make markets, and the only choice is to park my money in um, assets that are quite volatile, it, it makes it hard to then be a market maker in the space. So by bringing WisdomTree's very liquid assets into the, to the fairly illiquid space, and of course, Bitcoin and Ethereum are quite liquid when you compare it to a security token in the space where there's, you know, it's really in the hundreds or even thousands of dollars a day liquidity for, for um, security tokens in the space. That's, that doesn't cut it. You can't make any kind of substantial transactions. Um, with that kind of uh, liquidity. What we're introducing here through these assets is a very liquid instrument that already, these, these kinds of assets already trade on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ um, and in European um, securities exchanges. So the pricing information is very clear. 
It's got a strong pricing model. You know exactly uh, what the markets are. And if there's any deviation between the tokenized world and the securities world, there's an easy uh, market makers that have an easy mechanism by which they can make up the difference. And we're working on some things that to allow you to freely move from the blockchain space um, into the traditional market. Um, it provides a channel that doesn't exist and that the, the, uh, in existing markets to allow people to move freely between. And the blockchain markets need this to be able to reach their full promise. Got it. And how did that relationship with Wisdom Tree come about? Yeah. So they had been, they spent the last three years Um, and you can, their, their CEO, John Steinberg is first, he is, um, super intuitive. He really has a sense for, um, disruption in the market. He, and as he saw early on in the ETF marketplace or in the ETF model, how that would disrupt, um, the future of his marketplace, They've got done a number of innovative things in this market. They had been looking for a solution to this, and they looked at the various providers who are in the space. As uh, with the brand that they have, and as they service institutional clients, among other things, they, they needed a strong compliance model. They, they couldn't take risk there. So as they investigated the other providers in the space, um, they didn't see what they needed. And then they came across our platform. And um, we went into a deep process of going back and forth on uh, the compliance tools, the technical tools, the market fit, et cetera. And they ultimately, um, after about six months of due diligence, led our um, Series A round um, and, and our, our first um, really anchor customer for our framework. So it took a while to, to develop the, the relationship, but it is a strong relationship. As you could guess, the asset management world, that is the world where WisdomTree exists, there's tremendous um, fee compression going on. There's that, that marketplace is being disrupted. You see there's consolidation of the major providers in the space. There's a lot of movement and activity going on there. And so WisdomTree knows that their market is changing very quickly and they need to move aggressively to the next generation of um, asset management solutions. So they're moving at the same pace that we want to move. And um, so it's exciting to have someone with that kind of institutional credibility moving um, with the, the pace of a startup um, in terms of uh, solving these spaces, problems in the blockchain space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think beyond the obvious benefits to security, I think it's also like of great service to the crypto industry as a whole. The more well-established players like Wisdom Tree enter the market, whether through investments in companies such as yours or directly, I just think it benefits the entire industry, right? Like in order for blockchain and crypto to really become more mainstream, we need more Wisdom Trees to be involved. So it's just great to see that happening. There's no question. And along with Wisdom Tree comes other strategic partners. Um, we're not at liberty to discuss them, but there's, there's just great relationships in the institutional space um, that, that, uh, that are beginning to take this very seriously and um, who are moving briskly into the space. These are the kinds of things, they're, they're the foundations for strong markets I think the blockchain space, uh, including us, substantially underestimated the need for a strong foundation in order to achieve the objectives of liquidity, global accessibility, you know, really decentralization of finance. And until we took seriously as an industry the, the importance of compliance, the importance of regulations, um, we weren't good candidates to work with, with uh, institutional players. We saw this early on in 2015, and we did the hard work. Um, at first, no one else seemed to care. I mean, it was a hard value proposition as we would tell others in the blockchain space, hey, look at this, we're focusing on compliance. People thought we were silly. They thought the game was <laughs> to, you know, how you could best um, call yourself a utility token so you didn't have to pay attention to the regulations. We saw that that wouldn't go anywhere. Um, so at first it looked like a silly investment, but now um, we are right in the center 
of major changes in the blockchain world as FATF um, is insisting on all uh, crypto exchanges insist, you know, must follow the rules. And of course, institutional players are beginning to move into the space and they require, their brands require, their fiduciary responsibility requires them to take these things seriously. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, no major financial institution is going to enter the space unless it's compliant. Then they have the means to make sure that they are compliant and within the regulatory framework. Otherwise, you just can't have the big players involved. And so in order to make the pie bigger, you have to follow that path. There's no other way to do that. Yes. So here's the interesting challenge. Compliance is inherently a trust model. Um, and so the emphasis in the blockchain space has been on trustless models. Now, there's, there's a lot to be said for trustless models, um, how parties can work together where they don't necessarily have to trust one another. But in the compliance framework, trust actually is an important component. So the challenge is to leverage trustless networks to provide for scalable trust. And, and so that's where really clever thinking is, uh, has, you know, that's where we have, have produced really important innovations in this space. It's a longer conversation to go into the de details of how we make all of this possible, but that's where the, um, that's where the real play is for, th for the future of this. And what do you define as trustless? So trustless is where uh, parties can interact and not have any knowledge of uh, either one and have uh, a, a framework by which the transaction can take place, whether or not you're close. So Byzantine fault tolerance is an example, it is the foundation of trustless transactions. And it is a particularly important foundation on which to build other things. However, a party's um, qualifications to engage in a transaction in the marketplace. Someone must attest to those qualifications. So my name is Dan Doney. Who says that the person whose voice that you're hearing is actually Dan Doney? And then what authorities do I have to transact in uh, the financial service space? These are all attestations that if you allow for a complete trustless framework, some party can come along and say, yeah, that's Dan Doney. I know him. He's good. And then do business based on this. But if that party has nothing to lose, you end up with a race to the bottom problem. A race to the bottom being where the lowest cost provider, regardless of quality, is able to attest to anything. And what that effectively becomes then is an, a, a framework that's easily abused. So the question is how you build a foundation of trust which is ultimately a level of agreement between parties. And this is how economies are built. It's how contract law works uh, as a basic framework. And so that's where we've had to build a very open-ended framework that layers over top of Byzantine fault tolerance to allow for the buildup of qualified attestations that allow us to engage in financial transactions in a way that regulators can accept and that protects investors from, um, from abusers in, in the space, from swindlers. Makes sense. Curious, Dan, to get your perspective, I mean, there's been a lot of talk for quite some time about security tokens, right, STOs. And I think certainly last year, like many folks expected 2019 to be the year of STOs. It hasn't really materialized just yet. I think a lot of people are really excited about the advantages of, you know, security tokens and how that can really digitize things like bonds and uh, commodities and so forth, basically real world assets. But we, we really haven't seen that, you know, happening at the mass scale just yet. Why is that in your opinion? Yeah, so I famously said in 2018 that 2019 was the year of the security token. <laughs> okay, I, I, I didn't know that, but you were certainly in a good company. Many yeah, folks said um, that. Uh, so I was probably off just as I was with my compliance assessment by a couple of years. Um, 
we're seeing a lot of important foundational movement in 2020, um, but it's really probably is still a, a year out before this is um, be- becomes mainstream. There are very important players who are, who are moving uh, in a big way in the space. Here's the thing with markets. There is the problem of the dual coincidence of want, which is a prob- an, an economics problem set where um, you have a bi- it's a basic problem that is that comes down to this is the buyer and seller in the market at the same time. So if I want to sell my house because I need money tomorrow um, to do something, the likelihood that there's a buyer in the in the marketplace who will um, buy my house is pretty limited. So I might have to offer a very deep discount to be able to, to sell my house tomorrow. Um, and that's largely because, it's not because my house isn't a nice house, it's because the data doesn't exist, the buyer isn't in the marketplace. So until you have substantial um, buyers and sellers in a marketplace, you're not going to have uh, efficient markets. So the question is, how do you create critical mass um, into a marketplace? Because if the that was the case of the seller not having the buyer, the same thing's true. If a buyer goes to a marketplace, if someone comes to the security token market as an institutional player and there are no good assets in the space, they won't stick around. They won't come back. Um, because there's nothing for them to trade that has any kind of liquidity. So you have a chicken egg problem, right? How do the buyers attract sellers and how do the sellers attract buyers um, into the space? The foundational problem is data. So if I don't have good information on that real estate token that's trading in the marketplace, do I know that um, there was suddenly a... uh, um, Something bad that uh, mold was discovered in that uh, that realist piece of real estate, and suddenly the price is dipping. I'm just the last one to know. If there's no good mechanism by which I can assess that this is worthwhile for me to buy or sell, you're not going to have a liquid asset. Period. So um, there's a couple foundations that are required. One is uh, you need to have liquid assets introduced into the marketplaces so that buyers and sellers are already there. And that's what we think we're delivering with, with Wisdom Trees tokens. But you also need substantial data. And you can get this with exchange traded funds or funds in general. So we believe a real estate investment trust is a much better asset than a real estate than a real estate asset itself, right? The trust, you have a curator, that is the fund manager, who's responsible for keeping track of the performance of the individual assets in the fund. And you can rate the fund manager's performance based on their ability to produce yield. And you can trade you can trade easily on their performance and the data that they produce in the market because they're a professional curator. This is a... This is a much. These things are needed to be able to uncover the power of security token markets. And frankly, the people who are tokenizing a piece of art, we think these are interesting models, or tokenizing a building, are missing the point. You're never going to get to liquidity by starting there. Eventually, when the markets become liquid, then those will be interesting things. But um, that's that's not where you start. You start where I think we're starting with at the fund level. Um, and particularly at the already liquid fund level. So uh, two things are necessary. One is that market volume, because uh, that market volume has buyers and sellers um, in it. And that then leads to people who say, well, maybe I'd be interested in buying this. So liquidity begets liquidity. Um, Second is substantial data services that allow people to make informed decisions at um, transaction speed. And uh, again, a token without data is a very risky trade. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Again, I think many folks in the space recognize the advantages of STOs, but we're missing, I think, some of these components you just mentioned in order for it to really start taking off and gain more mass adoption. Yeah, Tomer, before you get to that, let, let me actually say what not to do. So what we see okay. is many folks who are in the space who are moving to sort of private markets. Um, so they're either standing up their own private ledger or um, moving to sort of a walled garden approach. 
that already exists. The ability to trade securities, assets, whether they're tokens or or not, is irrelevant. But to trade in a walled garden, in an over OTC marketplace, limited um, ATF, that already that's existed for years. So people who are moving to that model to execute are making a big mistake. That's not going to fundamentally change the way these markets work. They really need to be open markets where the rules are enforced. So that was the other piece that was missing is the ability to do compliance at scale as, as we brought this um, in, into the marketplace. And when you say open markets, then what do you have in mind exactly? Does that mean that even individuals who may not be accredited investors can participate? say, in the U.S.? Well, so the, the bottom line is the regulations are what the regulations are. And typically, the regulations are there for a good reason. Um, so uh, it, what, what we would say by open market, well, well first, a uh, c- couple points. What I largely mean by open markets is one that's markets that are not limited to a specific jurisdiction. So um, that or to a specific asset class. So if I move into an ATS and I can only, uh, ATS being an alternative trading service, if I move into a closed pool where I can only trade assets that are of like type, um, I'm, I'm by definition creating sort of a fragmented walled garden approach. What you want is to walk into a marketplace where I can trade any asset which I am legally permitted to trade. And that means the asset needs to know what I can do. That's a very different model than the way exchanges used to work. The New York Stock Exchange is set up so that anyone who is a U.S. person who registers through a, um, uh, a licensed brokerage can trade assets within the U.S. Um, jurisdiction. And they're all public assets. So that's easy. That's nice and liquid. But they're all public assets. Private assets have all sorts of different rule sets associated with them. How do you make an open marketplace where I can come in and freely trade what I'm allowed to do at international scale so that it is any user from any environment can come in and as long as they're legally permitted to um, can execute trades for anything that they are legally permitted to trade. It's a very different open venue framework that we're we're, uh, trying to establish to create the conditions where we can get the liquidity that we're after and um, that, that fundamentally transforms markets. Because uh, now, Wisdom Tree's offerings are public offerings, so it's great. They aren't restricted by um, accredited investor only uh, in the U.S. So they create the kind of opportunity that, for example, a Reg D real estate offering does not have to reach a much broader set of users. But those users, if they're eligible, should be able to trade in Reg D or Reg CF or um, Reg A plus type offerings in the in the same venue, as long as again they're qualified to do so. And that's where our policy uh, enforcement points are able to enforce those rules. Does that make sense in terms of the difference here in terms of open marketplaces versus a closed walled garden market where I come in and qualify and there I'll get access to Reg D real estate and only that. Yeah, for sure. I think that's an important distinction. And thinking about the markets more broadly, Dan, beyond what you're working on, what are you most excited about in the crypto space right now? Are there any particular either projects or developments that you're following closely? Yeah, so we are particularly excited. Paxhouse is doing some great work right now. And so we like what they're doing. Um, There's some major uh, institutional players who are doing s- some good work uh, within the space. State Street's really setting themselves apart um, with with uh, some excellent work in the, the blockchain environment. We've seen Microsoft uh, making some great moves uh, as a um, infrastructure provider uh, within the blockchain space. So there are, there are, what you're seeing is some big players and some small players, some new entrants, as well as some established players doing really interesting work in the blockchain environment. Yeah. And are there any specific verticals beyond what we already discussed that you think are particularly interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll tell you one that uh, has stumbled into our, uh, uh, environment is energy trading 
at the le- local level. So I'm, I'm all I'm, oh, interesting. So um, it turns out energy marketplaces are very inefficient, and the ability to use renewables um, in in to to when in renewable. So Tesla, every car is a battery. Pretend becomes a, a potential storage spot, which can be leveraged for renewable. Um, right now, when a windmill runs overnight and nobody's using the electricity, there's no good place to store that energy. So renewables haven't been efficiently brought to bear. This really creates an, a, a, if you can do an exchange at the IoT level that allows individual devices to basically trade on storage capacity, energy usage, you create something foundationally different in the energy marketplaces. And it turns out tokens are perfect for this, tokens plus IoT. And we've got a great partnership developing um, with uh, Bots Controls in the space in, in this marketplace. More to come on this. It's, it's still early on, but we think this will fundamentally disrupt um, energy delivery in a way that has massive impact on both energy markets, but also on, um, on global climate. So more to come on that. That's really interesting. <laughs> I'll definitely be interested to hear more when you can share that. And then also wanted to touch, you know, on the podcast, I always like to ask guests who come on about fundraising. A lot of uh, aspiring entrepreneurs are listening to the podcast. So you guys raised about $25 million so far and have been successful in raising that capital from well-established professional investors. Are there any specific best practices or tips that you can share with inspiring entrepreneurs who are thinking about fundraising? Yeah, what a great question. Fantastic question. I'll tell you, it has been much, much, much harder for us than um, than I ever envisioned. So I'm a first-time CEO. You know, that's that's actually really interesting. So I think probably every other time I ask that question, I get that response. And it's amazing, right? Because from the outside, when you look, you say, hey, you know, this company raised this these many minions and so forth. But then when you talk to the entrepreneurs, like oftentimes, so often they say exactly what you just said. So I think that's in itself is a really important lesson for folks who are listening. But sorry, please go ahead. Yeah, well, look, so I'm an innovator. I'm an inventor. I, I, I'm a coder. And so I like to focus on those things. As a CEO, I spend 90% of my time working on fundraising. So it's It's frustrating. Um, just in terms of unlocking my full potential um, w- within this the space, um, it, 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 that's frustrating. I'll, I'll tell you another frustrating piece. In 2015, we said blockchain compliance is where it's at. This is huge. Um, it's <laughs> right. going to change everything. Nobody listened to the message. We could not get it through venture capitalists, um, it, despite the the, the clarity importance of this. No one was listening. And so it took, you know, we had to go friends and family and, you know, it was a, now what it taught us was tremendous discipline in keeping our head down, not marketing. So most people haven't heard of us, despite the fact that we were actually probably, I think we're, we're older than most of the players in the space. We've been hard at work on our tech um, and we built out something I think that continues to blow away anyone who actually digs in to the power of our technology. But nobody was paying attention, and we we got disciplined. We didn't waste money on marketing. Um, we we had to build this out because the market didn't understand it. And there aren't good venues in the fundraising world to to deal with transformational technologies. It's all in the venture capital world. I'm sorry to the to the VCs who are out there. They all chase one another's interests. Um, very few of them take time to really dig deep. And it's I can understand it's hard to get into a deeply technical solution who is looking to fundamentally change the marketplace. So it was uh, hard for us. And until we got ran into um, a party like Wisdom Tree, who was very intuitive, who saw the deep trends, but who also had a strategic need, it was difficult for us. Um, now, again, we're very disciplined and focused in terms of the way that we uh, uh, have gone after, the way we've executed as a company. We don't waste money. Um, we're very keen about our responsibility to our investors to deliver. And um, so we've been disciplined in that regard. And that's good because it's good to build that discipline as a company. 
um, instead of wasting your money on parties and marketing events, et cetera. So, so we think that helps us in the long run, the fact that we've been disciplined. But the fact that we frankly got lucky to run into Wisdom Tree. We had planned for it. We had worked for it for about four years. But had we not run into them, you would still not be talking to me. And um, it wasn't because of VCs. We, we saw there's a great venture capital firm, Strawberry Creek Ventures, um, who, who was, is very founder friendly, who was great to work with. But most of the VCs that we've um, encountered have not been um, easy to work with at the transformational level. Our message doesn't fit into a 30-second um, elevator pitch. It's not going to. Uh, the challenges in this market are much more fundamental and foundational than that. But the big news is this transforms everything about finance. So, you know, we may or may not be the successful entity in the end, but if we are the successful entity in the end, we're talking about handling trillions of dollars worth of value. Um, but it's not easy to do that. There's a reason why the big banks haven't been able to get here um, uh, to, to where we are. And that story takes a long time to tell. And the venture models, as they uh, function now, don't give you time to tell that story. So it's been challenging. My advice to folks who are in similar situations is to, to be lean, um, to focus on your strategic customers, not necessarily on the venture um, uh, channels. A lot of people will lead you astray and will getting no quickly is much more important than having long strung out um, maybes. So, you know, force people to make a decision quickly in terms of whether they want to join you or not um, in, in terms of investing. And then, of course, always value the trust of those folks who, who put, their, um, put their money and uh, their faith behind you. Never misuse that trust. Uh, never abuse it. These are some really great points. Thanks for sharing that. And last question, Dan, before we wrap up. You have a geographically distributed team, right? We do. Yes. How do you, as the CEO, manage such a team remotely? Any thoughts there? Yeah, communication is the big challenge um, in, in this regard. Um, now, let me first give you the advantages and then talk about um, the challenges. So the advantage is there's, there are marketplaces in the world where you can get enormous talent for the cost. Um, in, in emerging markets, we, we have uh, dev teams in Romania, in Ukraine, um, where you just have kids who are extremely bright and uh, talented and hardworking and love solving problems that we can bring to bear on these kinds of things. But you've got to be able to work in a way that's, uh, that appeals to, to these kids and they love solving hard problems. So you got to make sure that you're feeding them. And, and as this is an advantage as a tech CEO that I can interact with those folks. We also saw, and, and our, as you mentioned, we have an investment from uh, Abu Dhabi that by working in those marketplaces, we could work closely with regulators and, and government entities. And that allowed us to supercharge um, our responsiveness to, to um, government organizations. So it's valuable to build from the start as an international entity. Um, but it also requires you to, to do a couple of things. One is manage your costs very carefully um, and make sure that you have a connected team. So communication really matters, setting up regular practices for communication and how you organize your teams uh, so that they have the freedom to operate independently um, and are loosely coupled with the other teams in, in other locations, but at the same time can coordinate their activities, has been a real discipline process. We haven't always got it right, so we had to do a lot of learning um, in this regard. But we're super proud of uh, the fact that we have a presence in all of these markets and are able to get access to the very best talent at the very best price point. Just to clarify on that, is your approach when looking for talent to find the best talent wherever they are? Or do you have several like global hubs and you hire for these specific offices? Um, it's a mix. So um, there, it, it does help to have talent close to where the need is. 
And um, so it, we are we really do have a hub in Abu Dhabi as their their government is really on the move. They're doing fantastic things there. So we have a pretty big team in that setting um, to be able to, to, you know, face-to-face interaction does matter. But we also then um, have a strategy of grabbing teams and talent wherever it sits and plugging them in to a bigger framework. So that required us to, to innovate from an architectural perspective in terms of the way we built our system so that a team can quickly plug in to a larger framework um, without having to, you know, know everything about everything. And um, now the good news is that sort of mirrors the way the financial system interacts. There's lots of players, lots of different systems. So by building a very modular infrastructure, it's allowed us to uh, bring on teams and talent wherever it's, they sit um, with whatever skill sets they might already have that we might need. But it also allows us to interact with a very fragmented financial service space um, and efficiently connect things in to scale. Dan, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights. Really appreciate that. Tamar, it's really my pleasure, and I, I look forward to follow up. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.